You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The various reactions to the resurrection of Jesus were quite amazing. It seems that almost no one was looking for it to actually happen. The faithful women that came to anoint a dead body were not there to witness a resurrection. They came to rewrap a dead body, one that had been hastily interred three days before. The disciples were scattered far and wide, tortured and confused, experiencing utter dejection. On this third day, Cleopas and his wife were leaving Jerusalem to go home to Emmaus, apparently arguing all the way. Mary, the Lord's mother, was in deep grief under the care of John. We don't know what Mary, Martha and Lazarus of Bethany were doing, but they were certainly not waiting at the tomb. Not one person was there as darkness fell around 6pm at the end of the regular Sabbath. Nor was anyone watching the tomb as the morning of the third day broke. No one had connected the previous night's great earthquake that we read about in Matthew 28 to the resurrection of Jesus, which had been so clearly predicted by himself that it would happen on the third day after his death. No one saw the angel's heavenly brightness stunning the soldiers. No one watched the angel roll back the stone. No one witnessed the angel raise the Lord, clothe him in new garments, and no one heard the most interesting conversation that must have occurred between Jesus and the mighty angels present. No one saw him going into the garden. No one saw the mighty angel, having finished his work, sit calmly on the stone to wait for the women to arrive, because nobody was there. And we marvel, don't we, at the unbelief amongst the disciples that Jesus would actually rise from the dead. It's remarkable because there had been so many clear words and so many Old Testament prophecies that it would happen. The Apostle Paul said in the first Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3 that Jesus Christ was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. But as we know there is no direct quotation that says he would rise on the third day in the Old Testament scriptures. You can only establish the predicted resurrection on the third day by looking at types. Jonah's three days in the great fish that God had sent. Hezekiah's healing from leprosy on the third day. Abraham's determination to offer Isaac and the effective resurrection on the third day. Joseph's elevation from the prison at the end of two full years after the signs of the bread and wine and the ark crossing Jordan on the third day. So we have a number of types that Paul is referring to that actually predicted the rising of Jesus Christ on the third day. But I guess we can say that none of these types were dramatically obvious, and the disciples may be forgiven for not seeing the typical meaning with enough certainty to be at the tomb as the third day broke. But more than that, the resurrection was the subject of clear messianic prophecy. Our brother chairman quoted from Psalm 16, and along with Psalm 22, they are very two clear messianic psalms. 
In Psalm 16, we have those words, Thou will not leave my soul in the grave. Thou will not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. Psalm 22, the very psalm Jesus had quoted from the cross, when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? From that very psalm, it ends up this way. I will declare thy name in the midst unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise thee. And there's the vow that Jesus made. That if God would raise him from the dead, then he would use the opportunity then to glorify God through the great congregations of the world in the future. I want you to come to Isaiah 53. Of all the scriptures, this perhaps was the incredibly obvious one that predicted a resurrection. A well-known chapter to us, Isaiah 53. Now we know that in Isaiah 53 it makes points like he was numbered with the transgressors and they had seen him crucified between two thieves. We know that it said that he would make his grave with the rich in his death and they'd seen quite unplanned that Joseph of Arimathea came along, a rich man with a tomb that had never been used. There had been so many fulfilments of Isaiah 53. He'd gone like a lamb to the slaughter. And, and all of these things, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, bearing our griefs. So many things in this chapter had come to pass in front of the disciples' eyes. But they didn't read on to verse 9. He made his grave with the wicked and the rich in his death because he'd done no violence. And then we read in verse 10, it pleased Yahweh to bruise him. He put him to grief. He made his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. The pleasure of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. That demands a resurrection. In verse 12, I'll divide him a portion with the great. A man in the tomb has got no portion with the great. It demands a resurrection. So Isaiah 53 was, was absolutely clear that Jesus would rise from the dead to fulfill the purpose of God in the earth. Now we might appreciate that the Ethiopian eunuch would struggle with understanding Isaiah 53, but surely not the 12 disciples. He'd been with Jesus for so long. So why was there nobody at the tomb? Resurrection wasn't an impossibility to them. They had seen the resurrection of the widow's son at Nain. They had seen in the house of Jairus, a little girl come back to life. They'd been having dinner just a few days before with Lazarus, who had been risen from the dead. Resurrection was not an impossibility, surely, in their eyes. But even more astounding is the fact that Jesus predicted his resurrection. Come to Matthew chapter 12. I'm just going to stay only in Matthew just for the numerous references that Jesus made to his resurrection on the third day. Matthew 12, verse 40, words we know about Jonah. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So there was the sign. It was going to come to an end. It was only three days and three nights, and there would be a resurrection. Have a look over in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21. I said, I'm just going to stay in Matthew because there are so many of these references. Matthew 16, verse 21. Look at the end of the verse. He shall be killed by the priests and the scribes and be raised again the third day. In Matthew chapter 20 and verse 19. He says this. They shall deliver him to the, to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and crucify him and the third day he shall rise again. So Jesus made it abundantly clear that he was going to rise from the dead. 
And at the Last Supper, he spoke about eating and drinking again with them in the kingdom, which meant he had to be raised to do that. So how did they miss this clear teaching about the resurrection? Why were they all gathered with anticipation at the grave as the, as the, the normal Sabbath came to an end about 6pm on the Saturday? Why weren't they there? The Jewish authorities were worried that Jesus might rise from the dead. They gave his prediction some weight, so they set a guard upon the tomb and a, a governor's seal upon the stone. They didn't want to have, have an upset in the nation. They were worried the disciples might steal the body and proclaim a resurrection. So all precautions were taken by the authorities to make sure nothing happened. When we come to Luke chapter 24, we come to the road to Emmaus. And as I suggest, I think this is Cleopas and his wife. She had heard the reports of the women who had met angels. But they had made a decision as a family that he, they would be going home. They'd been in Jerusalem for quite some time. She had been at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified, comforting Mary, her sister-in-law. Because we believe that Cleopas is the, the brother of Joseph. So that's why Mary, wife of Cleopas, was right at the foot of the cross. So here we have a situation. They're going home. They decided that as soon as the Sabbath was over, we've got to go home. We've got chooks to feed and goats. And... So they were going home and they're arguing all the way. You know, Jesus says in verse 17, what manner of communications are these? Um, which means to throw everything back and forth. Why are you debating? And why are you now looking sad, having stopped on the road? So there was a disagreement going on here. We believe it was a husband and wife because in the end they went to the same home, they sat at the same table, they offered the same meal. And when you actually pull apart the, the, the different reports they make, the Cleopas first and then the second voice comes in, it's obviously a man and a wife having a domestic argument. He wants to go home, she wants to go back to Jerusalem because she believes what the women said about meeting angels. So here we have a conversation going on. So look how the third day comes up again in Luke chapter 24 in verse 7. The angel said to the women, he will be rising again on the third day at the end of verse 7. When you get down to verse 21, Cleopas actually mentions in his reason why he's not going back to Jerusalem, he says it's now the third day since these things were done. You would think that if they had listened to what Jesus has said, they would never have used that as a reason not to go back to Jerusalem. But they've actually made the complete opposite application in the case of Cleopas. So here they are on the road. And no wonder Jesus says in verse 26, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And he called them fools and slow of hearts to believe all that the, prophet, the prophets had spoken. And so he opened up the scriptures and expounded the things concerning himself. Later he appears to the disciples in Jerusalem and again he challenges them and proved to them that he again fulfilled the scriptures in rising on the third day. So let's just stand back and examine all these reactions to meeting the risen Lord. When people actually confront Christ, reactions vary considerably. All are astounded and many really struggle to actually grapple with the reality of what they have just witnessed. The quickest to adjust was Mary Magdalene. Now remember, she came to anoint a dead body. When the tomb was empty, she twice said, they've taken my Lord away. So she didn't say, oh, he must have risen from the dead. They've taken him away. She said that twice. But once the Lord spoke to her through the veil of tears, just one word 
Mary. She was electrified to hear his voice and she was instantly convinced. Rabboni was her response, the great teacher. The other faithful women that met the Lord Jesus, as soon as they saw him, fell at his feet to worship him. John was convinced by seeing the neatly folded face cloth in the empty tomb. To John, that neatly folded face cloth evidenced that there had been calm, angelic activity to take that face cloth off the face of Jesus and to raise him from the dead and to actually have that, that cloth folded indicated somebody had time to do just that. And John was convinced about the resurrection by that point. On the road to Emmaus, when the unrecognised stranger opened the scriptures, their hearts began to burn. And as they sat at meat, and he blessed and broke the bread, perhaps now they saw the wounds in his hands as he handed them bread. And they were utterly convinced. They needed nothing else. And even though they no longer were allowed to see him, they rushed back to Jerusalem in the dark. And when they arrived back, the disciples refused to accept their witness, to accept the witness of Mary Magdalene and the other women were also disbelieved. Even when the Lord appeared directly to the ten disciples in the upper room, they still needed convincing it was him. And so he ate before them and invited them to touch him. And then we know about Thomas, who had been absent when the Lord first appeared to the disciples. He wouldn't accept the testimony of his brethren that Jesus was alive. He insisted that unless he had to touch the Lord for himself and the wounds, he would not believe. And so he was embarrassed. So what do we take away from that, brethren and sisters? Well, even for these people that had witnessed resurrections, believing in resurrection is not easy. Believing in miracles is not easy. Believing in all the things that God has promised to do with this world is not easy. Because life seems to take up so much of our concentration. And being mortals, we struggle with the infinite. We struggle with the might and the glory of God. Resurrection is a foreign concept to our natural instincts. And we say, along with that father of the child, Lord, we do believe, but help our unbelief. And in John 20, we have those tremendous words that Jesus said at the end of that chapter, that Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And those words are a great encouragement to us, brethren and sisters, because our presence here today declares that we do believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We did not see him nor meet him on the road, but we're here because we are convinced that Jesus is alive. And I want to talk about the reasons why we do believe. There are many circumstantial reasons to believe Jesus is alive. Amazingly, there's not one serious student of history that denies the existence and the impact of the teachings of Jesus. No historian denies that Jesus is a fact of reality. Our worldwide calendar testifies to his impact on history, the BC, AD, year of our Lord calendar that we have. Even the most strident atheists and sceptics all agree a man called Jesus came and died in Jerusalem. Even the Muslims realise Jesus as a great prophet. But almost everybody wants to deny the resurrection took place. And the reason is obvious. 
It's a bit like how they reject the obvious conclusion of a divine creation. They reject the resurrection because it raises all kinds of unwelcome consequences if it actually happened. If Jesus did rise, then God certainly exists. And there are so many other Bible predictions that then come into focus because of the risen Lord. And most of mankind does not want to face those outcomes. For most of the world, they just hope that it never happened. But few bother to check the evidence nor face the facts. However, the circumstantial evidence for the resurrection is formidable. Now, in our justice system, people can be convicted, providing the evidence is beyond reasonable doubt. We depend on witnesses and circumstantial evidence for a conviction. And the resurrection of Jesus meets all of that criteria and more. Here's the case for a risen Christ. It's very powerful. Well, number one, the body was missing. Despite the appointed guards, the Roman governor's seal, the heavy stone, no one has ever put up a reasonable logical explanation for the missing body. There were only lies invented by the leading Jews about the body being stolen by the disciples. The very determined provision of the guard on the tomb was designed to prevent any chance of a mistake or any chance for anyone to take the body away. But such a plot was unlikely anyway, because the disciples had not believed the words of Jesus about his resurrection. They were totally demoralised and disorganised at that particular time. They all fled from the Garden of Gethsemane, and apart from John, were nowhere to be seen at the crucifixion even. They were in hiding. They had no intention of stealing a body. What we do note, though, is this, is the dramatic impact that the resurrection had on those disillusioned and demoralised disciples. They had Jesus amongst them for 40 days, showing many infallible proofs that he was alive. And once they had been with him for that 40 days, those disorganised and demoralised disciples were completely transformed into fearless witnesses of the resurrection. And for the rest of their lives, their combined witness to the risen Lord was unshakable. No one ever deviated or retracted their belief in the resurrection of Christ. Now, some of you here are old enough to remember the Watergate scandal where Richard Nixon and his plumbers, they were called, uh, got into the, water, into the Watergate building to spy on the other party. One of the Watergate conspirators was a man called Charles Colson, who in jail converted to Christianity, and he said this, We conspirators had all agreed on a cover-up, but we couldn't keep the story together for two weeks. But these disciples never varied and were willing to die for their witness of the resurrection of Christ. Quite a compelling statement, I thought. So from shattered disbelievers, they were now quite willing to suffer to die for their conviction that Jesus was alive. And it wasn't just those 12 or those 11. There were so many other witnesses, 500 on one occasion, we're told by Paul. But a sceptic might stand back and say, well, you would expect the disciples of Jesus to say that he was alive. But soon thousands were being baptised in Jerusalem because of that witness. So even more compelling are unwilling witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, like James, the Lord's brother. Jesus met him personally. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, we're told, it says this, 
the word of God increased, and a great company of the priests were added, were obedient to the faith. Now, these are the guys that had put Jesus to death. These are the guys that had gone to Pilate with all kinds of lies. These are the guys that spread the story that, that you know, Jesus' body was stolen. Why have you now got a great company of the priests joining the ecclesia? And you can imagine that, you know, having an ecclesial meeting, probably in hiding, and all of a sudden there's a knock on the door and there's a whole bunch of priests lined up that want to join up. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 5, before the Jerusalem conference, we're told that many of the Pharisees had believed and joined the ecclesia. You've got all the enemies that don't want Jesus alive now joining up to the ecclesia. These are unwilling witnesses. And you never find in the Bible, nor in the annals of history, Jewish leaders going on denying the resurrection of Jesus down through history. Their lies bore no weight with anybody. Felix, Festus and Agrippa did not attempt to deny the resurrection of Christ that Paul preached. But perhaps the greatest unwilling witness of all is Saul of Tarsus. Initially opposed to the concept of the risen Jesus, he was dramatically turned around to proclaim it fearlessly for the rest of his life. And he was the ultimate Jew, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, suddenly converted to be the foremost preacher of the risen Christ. And he led a great impact upon the society of the world. Huge inroads were made into the Roman Empire. Their opponents testified, these men have turned the world upside down. Something that uneducated fishermen would find it hard to do. They turned the world upside down by preaching the risen Christ. Within 300 years, the first great earthquake of the apocalypse had occurred. The pagan Roman Empire became Christianized, a great cataclysm in human thinking. These things don't happen unless Christ was alive. And since that time, most of the world has heard the good news of the resurrected Jesus. He's made an impact that was impossible for a poor Galilean preacher with no media team, no microphones, no recordings, not even having written very much himself at all. He made an incredible impact upon the world. If the resurrection he so clearly predicted did not happen, he would rightly have been regarded by history as a self-deluded upstart, but he most certainly isn't. The risen Jesus is an undeniable fact of history, and we have plenty of circumstantial evidence to believe that he rose. More than enough for us to choose to believe everything else God has now said about the future. And belief is the conscious decision we make with all the consequences and responsibilities that come with that choice to believe. Blessed are we who, having not seen the risen Jesus, actually do believe. But let's think about the ramifications of the resurrection of Christ, because they are immense. If Jesus did come back to life, then God exists. God, who has a purpose, will bring his plans to pass. There is a plan that we can participate in. Those in Christ will be made alive. Remember what Paul said at Athens. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So God's intention to change this world, to judge this world, cleanse this world, reorganise this world, 
All is guaranteed by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The day of intervention is fixed and assured. Let's come to Romans chapter 4. Where it comes down to our particular concerns in the matter of salvation. We know Romans 4 is about the faith of Abraham. And it says in verse 23, It was not written for Abraham's sake alone that righteousness was imputed unto him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed. And we come here this morning very conscious of our mortality and our sins and our failures. And we want to be, have imputed righteousness stay with us. We got it at baptism. And we want it to continue with us that God will forgive us and account us righteous like Abraham. Then it says, it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offences and was raised again for our justification. And there are the conditional terms for receiving the grace of God, for having past and future sins covered. is granted to us for really believing that the resurrection and the God that was behind that resurrection. In Romans 5 verse 10, for if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Romans 6 verse 5, We've been planted together in the likeness of his death. We shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So you see very clearly, our salvation is very much tied up with the resurrection of Christ. Come to that well-known chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 19. For only in this life we have hope in Christ, we're all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19 and 20 and become the first fruits of them that slept. So the first fruit was the first fruit to ripen, the first fruit to be picked from the tree. It was the indication that a great harvest was to follow. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam in Adam all die. Now all men are in Adam, so all men die. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. It doesn't say all men be made alive. It says all in Christ shall be made alive. All men are in Adam, but, and they all men therefore die, but only a few are in Christ. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and afterward they that are Christ at his coming. There is the, the rest of the harvest that is yet to come. And in verse 27 and 28, this whole chapter about the resurrection of Christ culminates in the millennium and the glorious finality of God's purpose, that God is all in all. And that is all sealed by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. If we believe that Jesus rose, and we surely do, brethren and sisters, then we believe that he will soon raise the dead in Christ. And we all struggle with the inevitable and unpredictable curse of our mortality. So many loved friends and partners Faithful servants lie waiting in the dust, and we miss them so much. But our sorrow is tinged with a hope. We sorrow not as others who have no hope. I would not have you ignorant, says Paul, concerning those that fall asleep, that you sorrow not as the rest that have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them that have fallen asleep in Jesus will God send forth with him. And I want you to think about the words of Daniel chapter 12, which I think is perhaps one of the best summaries of the timing of the resurrection. 
Daniel 12, verse 1 to 3. At that time shall Michael stand up, which of course is the title of Jesus Christ, the great prince, now over all the angels, who stands for the children of thy people, so you'll come to rescue Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And we have to ask the question with COVID, followed by the war in Ukraine, the financial consequences we're now seeing, the madness of the woke world in which we're living, have we begun the beginning of sorrows? Have we begun the time of trouble such as never was? Because Daniel goes on to say, at that time thy people shall be delivered. Everyone that shall be found written in the book. And that's where our names have been inscribed by God. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and to some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. You see, that's why Jesus could say at the grave of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. I totally epitomise all those wonderful promises. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. In the Apocalypse, you don't need to turn there because you know the words so well. Jesus introduces himself to the Ecclesiastes and says, I am he that liveth and was dead. In Revelation 14, we have these words from Christ. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours and their works do follow them. In Revelation 20 verse 6, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death hath no power. They shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So our choice to believe means we have absolute confidence that God will raise the dead, remaking their minds, returning their memories, rekindling their characters as well as their physical bodies. And when you think about that, perhaps that's going to be the greatest miracle ever seen on this planet. And from all generations, from Adam onwards, God will resurrect those in Christ, those who have followed him faithfully and make them stand again upon the earth and be recreated and perfected in good health, restored to life. And we can only think, can't we, of the joyous reunions that await us on that day. Having passed the scriptural three score and ten, I love the words of the aged David, who said he was old and grey-headed, reflecting on the future. He said this, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness, I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. And the beautiful words of Psalm 71 from verse 20 onwards. Talking to God, he said this, Thou which hast showed me great and sore troubles. And I guess every one of us could make a list of great and sore troubles in our life. Thou shalt quicken me again, and shalt bring me up again from the depths of the earth. Thou shalt increase my greatness and comfort me on every side. I think that's a little indication of the wonderful work of the angels sent to look after us, that when we are raised from the dead, there'll be so many questions about what's happened since we died. They will comfort us on every side. And it goes on to say, I will praise thee with the psaltery, even thy truth, O my God, 
Unto thee will I sing with the harp, thou holy one of Israel. My lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing unto thee, and my soul which thou hast redeemed. And it talks about the happiness and the joy of realising the truth that made us in Christ has been vindicated. And that's our sure hope, brethren and sisters. God does intend to finish the work he's begun in us by raising his son from the dead. He will make his saints immortal. He will make them equal unto the angels. He will perfect them in mind and body to be fit for eternity. It says in Psalm 149, God will beautify the meek with salvation, retaining our individuality, but reversing the ravages of mortality. And God promises that Jesus will wipe away all the tears of his faithful servants. Something with, that many of us with hurting hearts and a few mental scars struggle to understand. But God promises he will wipe away all the tears from the face of his faithful servants. And we must believe that will happen. And God will then employ us to restore, to educate, to heal and replenish the earth. And to bring that perfect peace to mankind. I want you to come in conclusion to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. A well-known passage again, but one which I think summarises the power of the resurrection for us. We're going to pick it up in verse 16, and I'm uh, reading from, I think, a Weymouth translation. Verse 16. We know that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will raise us up with Jesus and will set us with you in his presence. Just think about the power of that. Not only will we be raised from the dead, we'll be set altogether in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the saints around his throne. For everything is for your sakes, in order that grace may increase with the increased number of recipients and so provoke an abundant thanksgiving to the glory of God. And that's why all of those who are at the feet of Christ will throw down their crowns and give glory to him because of what God has achieved. It goes on to say, therefore we do not lose heart. But though the outward man does waste away, and many of us know the reality of that, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. We should be growing spiritually and, and believing more and, and setting our heart more and more on these things. For our light and transitory afflictions, achieving for us beyond all proportion an eternal weight of glory. And here comes the conditional statement. Verse 18 is much better rendered as Rotherham renders it so long as we look at the unseen. Weymouth has, if we look not at the things which are seen, but at the unseen. For the, un for the seen is temporary, but the unseen is eternal. So you see, that promise of life is conditional upon us having the eye of faith that sees, believes, and acts in accordance with the belief that Jesus is surely alive. And we can be alive also. Blessed are we, brethren and sisters, said Jesus, who did not put our fingers into the wounds or into his side. Blessed are we who do believe in the risen Jesus Christ and come here today to remember both his death, which gave us the grace of God, and to remember his resurrection that guarantees our future. And let's just conclude with the words of the Lord himself. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. 
as the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead, but he that eateth this bread shall live forever. Blessed are we, brethren and sisters, who have believed. And Jesus said, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.